The European Patent Office podcasts bring you an insight into the technology and innovation shaping the world. Welcome to Talk Innovation, the EPO's podcast. Today's episode is the latest in a series in which we're talking to the winners of the European Inventor Award 2021. And full details of all the winners are on the EPO website at epo.org. My name is James Nurton, and today I'm joined by Professor Gordana Vunyak Novakovic, winner in the popular prize category this year. Welcome, Gordana. Thank you, James. It's wonderful to be here with you today. Today's guest is a bioengineer who has opened up new horizons in regenerative medicine. Notably, she's developed a way of growing new tissue outside of the body using a patient's own cells. This gives safer, more precise, and less intrusive facial reconstruction, as well as offering promises for replacing damaged lung and heart tissue. So, Gordana, congratulations on winning the popular prize at the European Inventor Award 2021. And I think many of us saw the ceremony where you won by a majority vote. Can you explain uh, your feeling when learning that you had won and and how you uh, celebrated? I was shocked. I really never expected it. Uh, My students, my colleagues, my friends were very excited about it, and they insisted that we watch together. And uh, I was just waiting for this to end because I was... I I just thought I don't have a slightest chance of winning. And then it happened. And it was really, really nice because it is a great personal recognition. But I think even more than that, this is really recognition to the work we do. And this is what I do collectively with my students and my collaborators. So just putting on map the field of tissue engineering, regenerative medicine was a huge, huge thing for all of us. So you you were with some of your team, were you, when it was announced? Yes, I was with my entire, I have about 40 people in my lab, and everyone was uh, there at the same time, we were watching together. And did you uh, have an idea of how your work has been appreciated, you know, particularly here in Europe? Was that uh, something that was also a pleasant surprise? I think to some extent, because we collaborate not only within the United States, I collaborate very much internationally. I have a number of colleagues in Europe. I visit Europe multiple times a year before the pandemic started. And uh, so uh, this, uh, you know, the science is very international these days. That It's not so important where are you from and where you work. It's really important what you do. And we are trying to collectively make progress. So Europe is a very known territory to me, um, as is the European Patent Office. Yes. And well, yes. And and I'd wondered how your success in these uh, in the award was uh, was received in Serbia. Oh, they were they were delirious. <laughs> they I mean, I got so much publicity that I couldn't believe it. They just understand that this is a very big deal in our field and also in general, they were very proud that someone from Serbia got the award. So this was this was also part of this really, really rewarding experience after I got this uh, this award. Well, that's, that's very good to hear. And I mean, perhaps we could go back uh, and talk a bit about your career. As you say, you were um, born in Serbia and studied at the University of Belgrade. So what did you do after that and and what took you to the US and, and how has how has that affected your kind of research? 
Yeah, so so actually I was, until I graduated, until I got uh, my PhD, I was pretty much on autopilot, you know, doing what I was supposed to do. My um, uh, choice of profession was also a little bit by default because my father was a chemical engineer. He was very creative. I loved what he was doing. And so I decided to try the same. Um, pursuing my PhD in chemical engineering, I actually spent a lot of time in Germany because there was one particular laboratory all the way north in Klaustal that had at that time the most advanced system for data acquisition processing that I needed for my PhD. So I was really shuttling between Germany and, and Belgrade for several years. And then I graduated. I got my faculty position in Belgrade even before I defended a PhD. So they recruited me to stay. We started family. Life was good, but I was not entirely happy because I wanted something different and more. And I particularly was looking if there is any way to sort of merge two areas that I was passionate about. One is engineering and one is medicine. This was the time when biomedical engineering as it is today has not existed. So I just embarked on uh, applying to Fulbright Fellowship, which I was very, very fortunate to get. And this is really opening all doors. So I looked into where is the best place to go. And at that time, it was MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston. I wrote to them, they said, welcome, like, sure, join us for a year, which I did. And then uh, another serendipity was that I just by a chance, I actually met with Robert Langer, who you know, because you awarded him in 2016. And so he really opened the door to me and he said, look, some of the things that we are just starting to do uh, would be perfect for you thinking about medicine engineering. And I said, okay, what is it? And he, he said, tissue engineering. And I said, tissue what? Because even the phrase hasn't existed at that time. And uh, uh, what he was doing with several colleagues, both, you know, clinicians and other engineers was to take the cells, to combine them with biomaterial so that they are provided with some kind of niche and then to implant these constructs into animals to see would they form tissues. And this was really fantastic. This was super inspirational. But then I was thinking being engineer and spend, spending my PhD working on like designing systems, I thought, why don't we make some kind of a precursor of a tissue in vitro using bioreactors? This was not used for tissues at the time at all. And Working on it, I realized like this is entirely feasible. I started with cartilage, then we started to grow heart muscle. And this was really my door to tissue engineering. So I was bringing something to the table and also greatly benefiting from other people. This was very formative experience to me. Bob was phenomenal mentor. I learned lots of things from him, including how important are patents. So he was always telling us, if you discover something, check if it's patentable. If it is, do it, and then you can do your research, and then you can publish paper. And if everything goes well, this will be commercialized one way or another. So this was one of the real lessons learned. So I returned to Belgrade. 
And then I continued to go to Boston a couple of times a year to work with him. And during one of these visits, uh, he told me they got a very, very large project with issue engineering. So he invited me to come for another sabbatical for a year, which I did. And this is when we stayed. And so I was in Boston until 2005. And this is the year when I was invited to Columbia. I really liked it. We moved to New York. And the rest you know. So I've been happily working at Columbia since 2005. And so when did you actually start working in tissue engineering then? In early 90s. So this is this time when I, when actually the field was just evolving. This famous paper that Bob published about tissue engineering, the first paper of a kind was uh, published in like 96, I believe. So these were the very, very early days of the field. Yes, and, that, and the field has, has developed enormously then in the last uh, 25 years or so. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It went exponentially. So, And as someone who's uh, spent a lot of time in the U.S. at, at, uh, at universities and academic institutions, how do you think the cultures in the U.S. and Europe uh, compare for research? Uh, I think it's similar. It's also a little bit different. Um, uh, what is different in the U.S. is, in the first place, there is this critical mass you know, I'm at Columbia, that's a large system itself. But then Columbia is on Manhattan, where you have several other huge universities and institutes and hospital systems. So you have this very, very large number of um, investigators and resources for scientific research in very small place. Um, the uh, um, Europe is a little bit more dispersed. I mean, people do collaborate, but this is a, a little bit less intense than in the United States. Um, the other thing that I feel in the States more um, emphasized than in Europe is really this entrepreneurship that leads to um, commercialization of technologies. I think it is more difficult to get funding in the United States on average uh, because you always compete for all funding. It's less effort and less written pages per unit funding in Europe <laughs> than in the United States. Uh, it's also Europe has a very nice tradition, which I wish we had in the United States, that investigators that are successful and productive are very often uh, funded based on their merit. So you're funded as an individual rather than being funded from one project to, to another. I think the rest is pretty much the same. We are all very collaborative. We are all very oriented towards benefiting patients. It's not very different. In long and short, it's not hugely different, but there are some, some differences. Yeah, that's very interesting and very interesting to hear the contrast there. And um, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the what you say about entrepreneurship and, and patents and so on in a moment. But maybe before we do that, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit more, um, if, you, if possible, about your own research and um, you know your, your kind of achievements in your career. I think I gave a very crude summary at the beginning, um, which um, is probably inadequate, but perhaps you could just enlarge on that a little bit. And Sure, you gave, I think you gave a great summary. I can maybe just generalize a little. Um, 
my field is the field of tissue engineering. So translated into very simple language, this means that we are capitalizing on the biological potential of the cells. So we would normally start from some kind of um, human stem cells that can be easily obtained and easily means small sample of blood or small sample of fat tissue or another tissue that you can harvest to isolate stem cells. We enable these cells to do their normal biological function, which is to form tissue structures by using bioengineering tools. And the, the two critically important tools are a biomaterial scaffold, which provides like a little home for the cells and also instructs them what to do by signaling. And then we have this bioreactor that I mentioned before, which is a substitute body giving environmental control and molecular and physical signals. So when you when you are trying to make a specific piece of tissue, let's say a piece of muscle, you will choose or design a scaffold that looks like a matrix of the ma muscle in our body. And the bioreactor will provide signals that our body is providing to the muscle, which are electrical signals from the nerve and then mechanical signals. If you make a piece of bone, it's completely different. But what's common for all of this is the cells are smart, we just need to provide them the right cues, and the right cues are those that we learn about from the book of biology. I mean, you really need to see what happens in the body and then recapitulate this in, in the lab. And maybe just one thing to mention, more thing to mention, which is there are two directions of this work. One is one is towards regenerative medicine. So we are trying either to make pieces of tissues to repair human bodies, such as a piece of bone or a piece of muscle, or even uh, engineering or repairing the whole organ, such as a lung. This is like the most important example for our lab. This is regenerative medicine. And then the another direction are so-called organs on a chip, where we make very small human tissues uh, that we connect by vascular perfusion. And we choose the tissue types in their order uh, so that we form physiological units. So one example is we are making cancer patient on a chip, which means we are studying cancer metastasis in this model, you can study inflammation, you can do testing of the drugs. So there are very many things that you can do to benefit medicine, not by implanting something into the patient, but rather discovering some other methods for new treatment modalities. And a very important direction in our research and in the research of many other labs is we are really laser focusing on the individual patient because we are very different from each other. So when you have a, a treatment of say cancer in particular, this is, this is a good example, then you really want to make model of this particular patient on a chip and find out what is the progression of cancer in this individual? What is the likelihood of getting metastasis? If there is a likelihood, is uh, meta are the cancer cells targeting bone 
for lung, for liver, or something different. This is very informative to the physician who will be treating this patient. So it can be much better targeted, um, much more precise medicine. Exactly. So this is a real precision medicine, and we are also pursuing precision medicine with implants because you really want your own bone to be reconstructed, your own lung, your own muscle, rather than getting a piece of generic tissue and living on immunosuppression pretty much for the rest of your life. So, 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 so I mean, there's some important advances that the field is making in recent years in this direction. Yes, and very interesting and very important uh, advances. Um, and I think people are are particularly interested or curious about regenerative medicine and and what that means for all of us you know will we be able to live longer will we have healthier more youthful bodies um, are we are we getting towards kind of science fiction 20 years ago the whole tissue engineering was science fiction honestly there was just this hope uh, there was no reality now it's turning into reality and uh, the big driver is really the need of our population you say we live longer which is very true because the life expectancy has doubled during the 20th century. But we also live better. So it is longer and better. And our bodies need more and more maintenance and more and more preventive care and more and more uh, like personalized treatments because you get, in, you get one health problem, you fix it and you, you keep running. And then there is another problem and you fix it. But it's much more demanding today. Indeed, yes. So you mentioned um, entrepreneurship and also the role of, of patents and IP. Um, I know you've been involved yourself in setting up a number of companies. Um, and I think you're also um, uh, quite keen to promote IP awareness among students and among young uh, entrepreneurs. Um, can you just say a bit more about why you think that's important and, and what you're trying to do to encourage it? Yeah, entrepreneurship is very important because this is what leads us to transform science into a benefit for society. The path uh, to this to these benefits is really is really through commercial uh, entities. Most people, including our students, uh, do not know much about the patents. Many of them, when they start college, they don't even know what patent is. Many people think patent is like license to you to do what you like. And then you need to explain to them that it's a kind of opposite, preventing everyone else to do <laughs> what you're planning to do. So uh, we do have classes on patents as part of the training for our undergraduate students, also in graduate school. I also do informal classes, informal trainings in my lab. The other form of education about IP, which I find very, very effective, is we have a some seed funding uh, within university um, and uh, small teams of students and postdocs are competing for this funding. So it is given to you to start from something you do in lab and then form mock-up company, pretend company, and go through all the stages that are involved, you know, from the discovery to deciding 
is it more appropriate to think about licensing your IP to say existing commercial entity or maybe launching your own startup? Sometimes you do the former, sometimes you would do the latter. And this lasts for about a year. So after a year, very interestingly, quite a few of these mock-up companies turn into real companies. So this is how people also, they learn and they get inspired about doing it for living. And I mean, talking about students, I mean, you've already mentioned um, working with Robert Langer when you were younger and and the influence that had on you. How how important is it, do you think, for students to have mentors or, or, or influencers and, and you know what difference can that make uh, to your to your research and, and the way that your career develops? I think it makes a whole difference. It makes a world of difference. Mentors are enormously important. I think all of us who were fortunate to have really good, inspirational, kind, generous mentors, uh, we are aware how much we learn from them, and then we are translating this to our students and postdocs and clinical fellows. So I always feel that some people open the door for me and now I am opening door for some other people. And it's just like the torch that is carried, you know, further. And I already have uh, very many academic grandchildren. So my trainees became professors and then their students, you know, became professors already. So it's just uh, so rewarding and so enjoyable. And whenever people ask me, like, what is your greatest success? I always say my students, because this is really the single most important thing in my professional career, you know, being able to really help the young generation, the next generation to first to discover what they really want to do, what are they passionate about, and they really train them in all the skills that they need for this. And very importantly, they uh, train them to operate in the future that is very uncertain. We don't know what will happen in future. Science is developing very quickly. So I think this ability for critical thinking, for leading, this is something that you need to train because then they will be ready, no matter what happens and no matter how science and technology are developing in the next 10, 10, 20 or 30 years. So it's a it's a difficult, uh, uh, difficult job, uh, something that actually carries a lot of responsibility, but absolutely the most rewarding thing that I do is to mentor my students. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fascinating talking to you, Godona. We're nearly out of time, unfortunately. But before we finish, I just wanted to ask you what your plans are for the for for for, for now, and uh, you know what are your current interests, and uh, do you know what you'll be doing for the next few years? I, the interests haven't changed. I mean, we are trying to. Uh, make more progress in some of the regenerative medicine options. I mean, lung is very high on our list. Heart is another organ that's very high on our list. We also work with bone and other complex tissues, and this is already moving into application. You know, some of these products are in um, clinical trials. Um, I'm also, my, my, my lab has a huge interest in cancer, so we are working very actively with others on modeling cancer in the individualized fashion. Uh, 
So, so nothing changed. I mean, they are keeping going and uh, the changes that they make on our projects are really driven by learning about some new emerging uh, clinical needs because the clinical need is the real driver for us. Who knows what the future will hold then? We sort of keep going and as someone, one of my colleagues said, like when they asked him, like, how, how long are you going to do what you're doing? And he said, until my wheels fall off. And this is how I feel in a way, you know, you keep going, you're giving your absolute best. And uh, as long as I have this young talent around me, you know, in the lab that is so motivated to pursue science, um, I'll, be, I'll be doing it. Well, I think we all look forward to finding out uh, what comes next and, uh, and where the research leads in the future. Thank you very much, Gordana. We look forward very much to finding out what you're going to be doing in the future. And it sounds like uh, there could be lots more interesting research projects around the corner. But thank you very much for joining us today on Talk Innovation. Thank you again for inviting me to Talk Innovation. And I also look forward to the future. And I do hope that we will collectively do much more good to the patients. And that concludes this edition of Talk Innovation, the EPO podcast. As I mentioned, this episode is part of a series uh, of interviews on the European Inventor Award 2021. And all the previous episodes with the other winners of the award can be found on the EPO website. And thank you to everyone who has submitted nominations for the 2022 European Inventor Award, including for the new Young Inventors Prize, innovators aged 30 and under. All the latest information about next year's award can be found at epo.org. So thank you to everyone for listening today, and we look forward to welcoming you to another episode of Talk Innovation very soon. Subscribe to the European Patent Office's podcast channel, Talk Innovation at epo.org, or on your favourite podcast platform. Let's Talk Innovation.